Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Packaging Brothers podcast. Special guest today, Amanda Mars from AMP Robotics. That's A-M-P Robotics. Amanda is their senior director of product, and AMP Robotics is really revolutionizing the way that recycling is working in the U.S., their technology and their use of robotics and their AI and their censoring technology is just all really, really fascinating and cool and forward thinking. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and here we go. Well, hi, Amanda. Welcome to the Packaging Brothers podcast. Hey, Brandon. Happy to be here. So I'm really excited for our conversation today. I love kind of robotics and the future of, and and how robotics like interplays with packaging, especially in the waste stream. And that's what you guys do, right? That's exactly what we do. Yep. Our uh, mission at AMP is to create a world without waste. It's a lofty goal, but it's um, intentionally lofty so that it can drive all of the decisions that we make and how we we create and scale this technology to help solve a really big problem. Okay. That's absolutely amazing. Give me a background on AMP, like where it came from, where is it right now? Where do you think it's going? Just give me kind of a, a brief overview of it. Yeah, sure. AMP started in 2014. Our founder and CEO, Matanya Horowitz, has a PhD. Well, he has many degrees in many things, but he was working at Caltech and was looking at AI and was really looking for where do we have tough problems in the world where this is a tool that can help in an industry where it really hasn't been applied yet. So he became aware of recycling as an industry and took a look at it and said, oh yeah, this is going to be a really cool change for the industry. So that's how we got started, combining AI, so computer vision-based detection of objects on a moving belt with robotic sortation. And that's how we got started. So where we are today in 2022 is we have over 200 installed base units across 80 different facilities in three different countries. Wow. And growing. But beyond that, we've just recently announced a, a new part of our business called a secondary sort facility. So material that has gone through a primary material recovery facility or MRF and was not able to get captured for recovery. Before it goes to the landfill, we can intercept it, give it one more sort through our proprietary facility design. And uh, just one more way that we're trying to keep things out of the landfill. Wow. Okay. So when this waste is being processed or viewed by these different, is it sensors or, I mean, I'm kind of, you're kind of picturing this like big conveyor belt and and all the waste is kind of going down and then all these sensors and robots are reading which items, and then it's kicking it off into different streams or buckets. Yeah, that's pretty much it. We use an RGB based camera. So it's just like a human eye. So just like a human can see something, cameras can see it. The only difference is because of the training that we can do on these images, we're able to detect things that a human eye just can't pick up and interpret in a quick moving environment. Um, So it could be things like, you know, two metals that visually would look similar to a human, the edges on them when they're bent or broken could be slightly different. And that would indicate that it's a different material type. So there's little nuances that with computer vision, you're just able to pick up, you know, faster than a human could, but otherwise, you know, it's objects that look just like you and I would see it with our eyes. And can it differentiate between different types of plastic? Yeah, it sure can. So that goes back to the training set that we use. And so, you know, we, we're all about having that installed base and that breadth of installations that allow us to see millions, 50 million, you know, we're into the billions over a lifetime of wow. objects that we've seen under our cameras now. And every time something is scanned and potentially identified or learned, or if the AI is like, I don't know what this is, it has a chance to learn at that point. 
That's right. Yep. Wow. Okay. Yep. And we're constantly looking for ways to uh, train our objects. And it's more than just, you know, one-time training on the objects. We're always improving the way that we characterize objects. So for example, a plastic bottle that maybe, you know, holds a beverage. We can also say, does it have the cap still included on it? Does it have a wrapped label around it? Does it seem to be food grade or non-food grade? So those sorts of details are all part of, you know, how a human would over time be able to learn and be able to make these decisions. And we've been teaching our uh, AMP neural network to be able to do the same thing. What about those materials that may have, I mean, you kind of brought up a good example with uh, like a polypropylene cap on a PET bottle or... Exactly. Or maybe like a multi-layer coax tube where there's kind of multiple layers of different kinds of plastic. How would the technology read it and what would it do with it? Um, Yes. So the technology will read it based on how we've trained it to read it. So if it's a super complicated, you know, multi-layer package that we've never seen before, well, chances are we're going to call it what we think it looks like based on the objects that we have seen. But we are working directly with CPGs for things like multi-layer film Mm. and being able to train to specific objects. And that's part of the beauty of AI is, is with this training set, you really can get into you know, any specificity level needed. But at the object level, just like a human, it's, hey, what do I think this is? I can't really tell you know, nuances or what's inside the object that I can't see. Yeah. I see here that the markets that you're in are plastics, paper, metals, construction, electronics, and organics. Yes. All the things that could end up in a landfill, right? (laughs) So we predominantly focus on supporting your sort of curbside recycling programs. So those plastics, those papers, we do support customers in construction and demolition. They care most about things like gypsum, wood of different grades, you know, metal recoveries. They also care about QCing or quality control of those streams. So pulling things like a plastic bottle out of a wood stream. Um, And that's where you start to get some fit across the different vertical markets. With organics, similar, it's that you want to pull out the things that are non-organic from the stream so that as you're going into a composting process, you don't have, you know, bits of plastic or metal in there. Tell me about the actual like robots that are doing the sorting. Are they using air? Is it like a manual arm that's going in there and grabbing items? Like, how does that work? Yeah, we have selected out of all the different robot styles that could exist in the world, we've selected this Delta style robot. And we like it a lot because you can have fast acceleration for high speed moving belts and more degrees of freedom. So the robot can just move to more places to get a good pick. It uses air. So it's a suction cup. So we basically will slam down on an item. We don't have to keep the item intact after all. This isn't a recycling facility. And so we'll slam down on the item, get a good pressure a grip on the item and suction it up, move it over to the bunker where uh, the item needs to go and then drop it at that point. So part of the beauty of this AI combined with the robot is customers are able to program how they want the robot to pick. And so we can support you know, multiple different bunkers, multiple different materials in each bunker. And depending on what the customer's specific material stream is and what their specific market in their area is, they can adjust the robot to sort what matters to them. We can support both a positive pick where you're choosing the item of value or a negative pick where you're choosing the items that are contaminants. Either one the robot can do. At the end of the day, we're just telling the robot, here's an item and we want you to go pick it. And just to describe it, you refer to it as a Delta style robot, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of like the, 
I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, sure. but I'm picturing that game at the arcade when we were kids, when you put a quarter in and then you'd like control the arm and then you'd hit the button and it would go down and grab something. <laughs> right. Is it different than that? <laughs> it's different because our robots will actually pick things and those arcade games never, ever got the stuffed animal, did they? Um <laughs> Oh, so those are actually successful at getting the items. Great. Yeah. Great. Good to know. Okay. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So a Delta style robot, it has um, multiple arms that come down from a base, very similar to the toy that you were describing and a suction gripper on the end of it. Okay. Do you have an idea or I don't know if you have this at the top of your head, but like how many units can it grab per like minute or yeah, maybe it depends on how fast the line is going through. There's so many things it depends on for sure. So One of them is what we consider burden depth, how much material is on the belt, because you really can only pick one item at a time, same as, you know, a human hand can only get one item at a time. But uh, the difference with a robot over a human is we can operate at a much faster pick rate. We tend to see about 80 picks per minute in a real world environment, but with a controlled environment, you can get above 120 picks per minute. Wow. Okay. And robots do it sustainably. You know, humans get tired. It's hard to stay focused that long, especially with a moving belt. You know, humans need lunch breaks and robots are (laughs) wonderful at just zooming through it. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. So I did notice here, there's no glass that you guys are currently processing. Why, why isn't that a material that you're, that you're focused on? Yeah, there's no glass. It tends to be a couple of reasons. So some recycling programs do not accept glass. I'm not sure if you've come across that where you live. Yeah. Yep. And that's really because the glass can break down and wear down the equipment in the facility. Um, It's just, you know, highly abrasive. There's also, you know, glass will break during the process. So you tend to not get whole pieces of glass. You tend to get glass cullet or smaller pieces of glass. With the way that the sortation process works, this tends to fall out and go into a fine stream. And so at that point, really the only use of it is for something like, you know, roadbed material. So it's unfortunately pretty hard to recover glass. Yeah. And in my personal opinion, the best thing you can do with glass is reuse it. I have, you know, jelly jars that I use for storing coffee beans and everything else because it's just, you know, one of those items I look at and I go, I don't really want to recycle this. I think it's better for a reuse. Yeah. Glass is tough because it's basically sand, right? Yep. And it is infinitely recyclable, a lot like yep. a lot of the metals, especially aluminum for packaging. But yeah, it is hard to capture, transport. The carbon emissions impact is really high as well. Exactly. Exactly. It's so heavy. I was just hoping that your AI robots were going to make it a whole lot easier on us. I was picturing <laughs> like a robot that could like prevent glass from breaking or something. <laughs> oh, that would be cool, wouldn't it? Unfortunately, the challenge with glass has nothing to do with the sortation piece of it. Yeah. Like if it were able to get on a line, it, it could be sorted. That's no problem for us. It's really everything before and everything after. So being able to really get the material to a sort point without it just, you know, causing a whole lot of issues with the sortation process or the equipment, and then having a good offtake market for it. It is very heavy, which means it is expensive to transport. Yeah. Now the electronics piece is really interesting too. I mean, there's so many different materials and chipboards and all these, how does that work? Um, Electronics recycling is very difficult. There are so many different metals. And at the end of the day, so many of the objects look the same. It's also a pretty hazardous process with some of the, the chemicals that are in the elements. So we love that robots could support this area better. The installations that we have in electronic waste 
are very much custom made for the customer that we support today at a variety of locations for their specific sorting process. So in that case, they're pulling out you know, specific items and we've done the neural net training to make sure that we can see their items. It's an area that we are very interested in expanding more into as the industry has need for it. It just takes a little time for the neural net to be able to identify items that are difficult even for humans to be able to see. I love it. You just use neural net. <laughs> this is starting to sound more and more like Terminator to me. <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How is AMP kind of like tracking and tracing the materials that are being processed? Yeah, our vision system. So the hardware that has the camera that can detect what's on the belt and then our neural network, that's the brain that identifies and interprets what we just saw through that camera system. That is creating loads of data that previously was not available in these material recycling facilities. You know, previously you had a human at a sort point. And the human wasn't keeping a log of everything that was happening hmm. um, or you know, even saying what they picked or what else was on the belt. Well, these vision systems are now characterizing in real time everything that's on that belt, whether or not we are uh, choosing to pick it uh, with the robot. So this is a vast amount of data that we didn't have before. And this data is useful in so many ways for these facilities. First, it characterizes what material is on the belt. If you know what loads from haulers you're running at that time, you can now know where that item came from. Mm. You can see how volume changes throughout a day or throughout a season. And yes, there is seasonality to waste streams. Yeah. And then you can take action based on that data to really try to optimize recovery. So we really target that data usage and characterizing the material in the belt for a material recovery facility operator to really be able to just get the most out of those recoverable commodities. The second is you can now say, like, out of everything on the belt, you can quantify what material was recovered, or if it's something like on a last chance line, which is the line right before uh, things go out to the landfill, what other things were on there? What was your opportunity cost? And you can look for adjustments to the manual sorters, the QC stations. Maybe you're able to justify return on investment for another robot. We love when that happens. I bet. Um, but you're, <laughs> it's really all about maximizing recovery. Okay. And the third way that this data can be used is estimating the bale purity without a manual audit. So the way that the industry operates today is they create these commodity bales, but every now and then they have to break these bales apart and do a manual audit to be able to make sure what's in there is good and is meeting the spec for that commodity. But as you're able to track you know, the material in the belt and, and know what you've picked, you're able to keep a record that is like an audit in real time without having to do that manual intervention. So this is now various levels throughout the, an organization for a material recovery facility that can capture new insights and lead to bottom line improvements in ways that they just didn't have before. You know, they didn't have this trend data. They really only had the output of what they were creating. So it's very, very exciting to be able to use this data and really make meaningful change in these facilities. I want to back up a little bit. I, I can tell that you're passionate about this. Yeah. <laughs> And I love that. What is your background? How did you figure out that you wanted to be in this space? Oh my gosh. Does anyone ever figure it out or does it just happen? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so my background is technology. From a very early age, I knew that I felt like technology was a cool way to solve some problems. And in mm -hmm. any way that I could be a part of, you know, any small way in the world making a positive impact, uh, that's what I wanted to do. I kind of stumbled into product management um, after a variety of early career experiences where I got to try out business and I got to try out technology. And I realized I really loved that intersection 
and customer requirements and understanding spoken and unspoken needs and translating between business and tech just felt like that was a sweet spot for my uh, specific skill set. I spent six years at GE working in smart grid and related electronic, like electrical distribution field, and absolutely fell in love with industrial customers. Hmm. I don't know many people who are like, yeah, industrial customers are the best. But I think there's so much immediate value you can bring in a large way. And everything in a product when it comes to you know, the value proposition of the product is directly related to business outcome. Mm. So I really love being able to see a direct and immediate impact of the features and the products that, that I help build. After GE, I went to Amazon and I was intentionally looking to learn the way of developing tech products at the speed and the scale that big tech companies work at? And how do I bring that back to industrial customers? So when AMP reached out, it was a a no-brainer to me to get to come back to an industrial customer, to get to work with really amazing people, really amazing. I absolutely love being a part of such an intelligent and passionate workforce. Get to work on really cool technology and and work on a big problem. That's amazing. What do you think the future is going to look like in the world of packaging and waste and recycling streams? you know, five, 10, 50 years from now, where do you think it's going to be? Where do we really need to be? You know, I know that there's a lot of conversations around just the, just the amount of packaging waste that is ending up in landfills that isn't being processed. I know there's a huge growing demand from large companies to increase the amount of recycled content that is being used. I have a feeling that a lot of these forces are obviously impacting what's going on at AMP. Absolutely. It's pretty amazing how far the technology in the MRF industry has come in the past, you know, six years, seven years. It's pretty exciting to think about where it can still go. It still feels like we're in the early days. So when we think about all the ways we can apply technology to keep material out of landfills at AMP, we're really focused on four areas. The first is continuously expanding our neural network. As I've talked about here, the specificity in objects like form factor or other packaging details becomes difference for how customers want to use this information, whether it's for data tracking for things like extended producer responsibility or for picking to drive a robot. Um, we're also always looking at improving our accuracy. Just, you know, materials are always changing and we want to always keep up with that. We also look for for sortation, our second kind of technology pillar is around just making sure our robots are optimized to pick what they need to go pick Hmm. um, and making sure that the picking performance is always improving as well. The third is around presenting the data that I talked about so that we're always supporting efficient operations, driving novel insights. Data on its own isn't a whole lot. You need to have those insights and drive action from it. And so as more and more data comes together, being able to really put it together and, and, uh, direct activities to help achieve really great outcomes. And then the fourth is the AI-driven secondary sortation uh, that I mentioned, so that we have that one more true last chance before the the landfill. And so just driving the cost of sortation down, driving the purity of bales up, you get this kind of double effect on a commodity market so that your costs are not as bad and your revenue is even better. And then all of a sudden your profitability overall gets really high. And so that's where we are excited about being a part of this circular economy. It's one thing to be passionate about sustainability. It's one thing to you know, feel like you're doing good. It's another thing to be a part of the global supply chain, which I think all of us over the last couple of years have realized how important that is. Hmm. And just you know, a part of the circular economy. When it comes to packaging more broadly, we see trends emerging around extended producer responsibility. You know, what 
packaging is uh, able to be marked as to show what its multiple content is um, because, you know, packaging is never just one thing. And we're very excited when producers are, you know, taking their responsibility seriously to design their packaging as best as they can for recyclability. Are you seeing that there is a lot of support from large companies, businesses? You mentioned EPR. And I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that there is that often a lot of the companies that are kind of, you know, saddled with the, a lot of the focus of the amount of packaging waste that they're contributing to often point to the waste stream being like, well, it's their fault because they're not collecting it. And then it becomes this back and forth kind of thing about where the issue is. But I mean, it sounds like your solution at AMP is is solving a lot of those problems that the circular economy just doesn't have right now to function. So I got to think that they're supporting what you all are doing. Absolutely. We're working with one uh, global CPG right now on a research project specifically around their material, um, starting with training our neural network and then you know showing recovery. So um, fr- from that perspective, I am encouraged at how CPGs are very much taking this um, seriously hmm. and their sustainability goals you know, at least for the the parts that we're working on, um, you know, there is active work on it. It's not an easy problem, especially at the scale yeah. that some of these uh, CPGs work at. But it's very encouraging to see, um, you know, attempts and, and research to to start making progress through it. So as we kind of come to the end here, there's always a lot of interest in questions when it comes to just recycling in general. What have been some of kind of your big lessons or takeaways or advice that you like to give? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's funny, every dinner party that I've gone to since joining AMP, we can fill the entire dinner party just talking about recycling because I bet (laughs) (laughs) so many questions from everyone. And it's so relevant to our daily lives. I think one of the EPA studies from 2019 said in the US, we produce almost five pounds of waste per person per day. So definitely something we all are, you know, very much a part of and very much a part of figuring out the solution for it. So since joining AMP and learning more about this industry, things I've become acutely aware of is how much metals are infinitely recyclable and are always worth recycling, always. If you have used beverage can, as we call it in the industry, or UBC or an aluminum can with you, and you don't have a way to throw it away, keep it with you, bring it home so you can recycle it, please. So metals I'm very passionate about. Plastics, I know they get a really bad rap, but you know what? Try to recycle it and try to keep your peanut butter jars cleaned out and you know give a rinse to, to food items. That really does make a difference. We talked a little bit about glass. I personally have chosen to reuse it. I find that's the best use for it. Your thin films, your you know kind of grocery bag sort of things, in most recovery facilities, they are difficult to recover. They'll get tangled up in the machinery, which is why most facilities don't accept them. So if your local facility does not accept them, I do encourage you bringing them you know, to uh, stores that will recover them. They do have a use. They can be recycled. They just get tangled in the machines. What are some of the changes you've made for your own recycling habits? I'm always looking for a good tip. Those are great. I've really focused in on, you know, really eliminating as much yes. kind of packaging as possible. That's been the, fir- or just simplifying too. And as we're helping brands with their packaging, I mean, one of our first kind of questions or pushes is how can we make this simpler? How can we reduce the amount of packaging material that's being used? Because I think that's I think that's the first step. Absolutely. But yeah, bars over bottles. I'm doing bars in the shower, shampoo bars, all the hand soap bottles have been replaced with bars of soap around the house. So the kids are all using that. Awesome. Mike, probably one of the only packaging guys that's like anti-packaging. 
because you know, you know too much. <laughs> I'm thinking about like, I do, I do. And I'm more concerned about the world that my kids are going to grow up in rather than, you know, trying to reinforce the outdated kind of views of what business and packaging should function like or whatever. Absolutely. So you work on the beginning of the problem and get the packaging changed. I'll work on the end of the problem with recovery. And together, we're just going to keep the world free of landfills. You know, I think that's a great plan. Awesome. I do. Amanda, is there anything else that you wanted to kind of mention before we end? I can't think of anything. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today and hope that you've gained something valuable from this. Looking forward to the change we can all make in the world. Absolutely. Every little bit counts. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Brandon. Well, thank you so much for listening to that episode and a special thanks to Amanda for joining us from Amp Robotics and for sharing all of the really cool stuff that they have going on. Again, highly encourage you to check them out. Google Amp Robotics right now. Go check it out. I'm really excited to see what they do going forward and what the future holds for improving recycling as we know it here in the U.S. So until next time, take good care of yourself. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions, concerns, recommendations. Take good care.